Turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 11. Very famous chapter, and rightly so. This chapter obviously is the miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, This evening, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, and considering the diagnosis. John chapter 11, verse 1, give attention to God's holy word. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in that place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. And then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the ordinance that you have established among us. And we pray that by your spirit you would make this ordinance to be a means of grace that we might hear your voice and not the voice of man. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I know that uh, all of you I'm going to assume, at least most of you, have had to go to a doctor's appointment. And as you go to the doctor's appointment, you uh, go there to get testing, or perhaps it's for an annual checkup, and whenever we go to the doctor, there's always a little bit of apprehension. There's a little bit of concern. It may not be a serious or weighty apprehension. It may not be a serious or weighty concern. When serious issues happen to us, to that degree, the concern goes up and up and up. And, and what is the thing that we're concerned with? We're concerned with the diagnosis. We're concerned that this headache that I'm having means I have a brain tumor, or this pain in my hip means that I have bone cancer, or, or whatever it may be. These heart palpitations mean that I need some type of heart surgery. The the diagnosis of our physical health is often the source of a lot of angst for us. 
Now, at one level, this is to be expected. God made us to dwell in our bodies. The body is good. Physical life is good. And to live in God's creation is a good thing. And yet, in our love of this life, and in our attachment to these bodies, which is natural, we can often take a diagnosis and miss the broader diagnosis that God is working in us. You see, our physical bodies are one thing, and the life of our physical bodies are one kind of good. But when God as our spiritual physician is working in us, He is seeking not the health of these bodies, but He's seeking the health of our souls so that our souls will be fit to receive the heavenly body, the glorified body. And so often when we receive a diagnosis of the physical body, we lose sight of the deeper diagnosis of our souls. And it is in remembering that spiritual diagnosis, remembering the thing that we ultimately need through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that helps us walk through a diagnosis of our physical bodies. I'll put it simply this way. In order to pass through the sufferings of this life, we need to keep our eye upon what God is doing through the sufferings of this life. This chapter that we're about to look at is rightly regarded as one of the most famous chapters in all of the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, this is the final miracle that Christ will perform before he goes to the cross. This is not only the final miracle that he will perform before his resurrection and before his crucifixion, it is also the most glorious and uh, clearest display of his power that Christ will perform in the Gospel of John. Not only does this chapter teach us about the glory of Christ, it is also a deeply instructive chapter. It's a deeply practical chapter, particularly when it comes to this aspect of walking through sufferings by faith. And what Christ gives us in this passage is he teaches us that in order to endure sufferings, you have to understand the purpose of sufferings. You have to follow his example of walking through sufferings, and you have to keep in mind the means by which we walk through our sufferings. In order to walk through sufferings in this life, we have to keep in mind the purpose of our sufferings, we have to keep in mind the example of how to walk through our sufferings, and we have to keep in mind the means by which we walk through these sufferings. There's going to be three things that we see in this passage. Verses 1 through 6 is the purpose of our sufferings. Verses 7 through, uh, pardon me, 7 through 11 is the example of walking through our sufferings. And verses 12 through 16 is the means by which we walk through our sufferings. Now, I'm going to simplify these even further, uh, the, and I'll, I'll just give you a one-word definition for each of these things. 
The purpose of our sufferings is the glory of God. The example of how to walk through our sufferings is Christ. And the means by which we walk through our sufferings is faith. Glory, Christ, and faith. The purpose of our sufferings is God's glory. The example is Christ. And the means is faith. And we're going to see that as we look at these passages. But I want to make a comment more broadly about this chapter as a whole. As we get into this chapter, you're going to see that it's very episodic. What does that mean? It means it, it, it takes place over a series of episodes. There's various scenes in this chapter. And the way that you know there's different scenes in this chapter is by the transition between places. This is a rule of thumb. As you're reading the scriptures and you notice the setting changes, something happens in this city, and then the scene moves to another city. Well, now you've got a different scene. The story is moving forward, and it's teaching a different point. In, in this chapter, there's really five episodes. One through 16 is the one we're going to look at tonight. 17 through 27, 28 through 37, 38 through 44, and then 45 through the end of the chapter. So there's these five episodes that happen throughout this chapter, and in each of them, there is a group that's being dealt with. There's a group that's being dealt with, and that group is represented by one individual. In this passage, the group that's being dealt with are the disciples. The disciples are the ones that Christ is teaching, and they're represented by Thomas. Thomas is the only other person who's given a voice in this little episode, and we're going to see this as we go throughout chapter 11. There's the episode, there's a group that's being dealt with, and a representative that interacts with Christ. Here, it's the group of the disciples. Now, one of the things that you realize about the disciples as you read the Gospels is that they're still learning. They have a long way to go in the Gospel narratives. They are often very unperceptive. They're often very slow to realize what Christ is trying to teach them, and they're often, uh, they often misunderstand our Lord's words. We see the same thing here. But the important, the, the reason it's important to recognize this about this passage, especially for you young folks, Christ takes time to teach these disciples before they go through sufferings. You know, in this passage, the disciples aren't the ones that are really suffering. It's Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Jesus. But the disciples themselves, the twelve, represented by Thomas, are not really connected to these people the way that Christ is and that Mary and Martha is. And Christ is now using this as an occasion to teach them about sufferings and how to move through them. And one of the first things that we learn is the purpose of sufferings. Notice how John begins in verse 11. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister, Martha. Throughout the gospel narratives, Mary and Martha uh, show up at several different points. It's likely that this family, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, hosted Christ on several occasions, spent a lot of time with Christ, and took care of his needs. We know at one point that Mary and Martha are preparing a, a meal. Well, Martha's preparing a meal. Christ is teaching at their home, and Mary is listening at the feet of Jesus. 
What's evident here is that this family was intimately connected to Christ. They served him. They took care of his needs. This is the family that's being spoken about. John goes on and talks in verse 2 about Mary more so in particular. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Verse 3, they go on. The sisters sent uh, word to Christ saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, there's a very important lesson here. Before we descend into the sufferings in particular, I want you to notice that John repeats twice the love that exists between Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and Christ. He reminds them twice about their love. The first one is in Mary's act of devotion. It says that Mary was the one who anointed uh, the Lord's feet and wiped it with her hair. Now, there's some mistake about this. Some have said this is the sinful woman when Christ was sitting with Simon the Pharisee, and this sinful woman comes in, and she's weeping, and she breaks the alabaster flask, and she wipes the Lord's feet with her tears. Some have said this is the same Mary. It's not, because that event happens in a different city. Mary served the Lord in the city of Bethany. Those are not the same person. They're not the same woman. What this act of devotion showed, however, was Mary's love and care for Christ. She loved him so much that she was willing to wipe his feet with the very hair of her head. And then they they, uh, communicate to Christ, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Now, there's, there's a very important lesson here for us, because if you're like me, you've gone through some sufferings in your life. You've, you've received the diagnoses, the, the diagnosis that you didn't want to receive. The thing that you feared came true. And in the midst of those reports, it's easy to forget that the Lord loves you. But John reminds us Christ reminds us through this example that God's love to his people is unchanged by the circumstances he puts them through. Paul will say in Romans chapter 8 that neither height nor depth, sword, famine, pestilence, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Now Romans chapter 8 is also an important chapter for sufferings because Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the sufferings of this life cannot be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And so I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ and God the Father love you, even when you get cancer, even when your child dies, even when the sufferings and the diagnosis that you didn't want to receive comes your way. God loves you, and he may send you through these sufferings. So John reminds us of this, and then Jesus reminds us of the purpose of sufferings. Look at what he says in verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now he comes to the particular purpose. He teaches us very clearly what the purpose of these sufferings is for. Notice how he phrases this. The sickness is not unto death. Now, we know later on 
Lazarus is going to die. In fact, within this episode, Lazarus has already died. So what does Christ mean when he says the sickness is not unto death? Christ is speaking about the purpose of this event. That the the purpose of this sickness doesn't end with the death of Lazarus. That's not the purpose of it. But the purpose is higher and greater. The purpose of this sickness is so that God the Father would be glorified through His Son in the midst of it. Now, this is the purpose for the whole chapter. In each of the episodes, we're going to see that Christ is glorified through this sickness in different ways. But at this point, and just simply in this connection, Christ tells us that these sufferings, this diagnosis, is not unto death. It's unto the glory of God. You ever visit somebody in the hospital? You ever visit somebody on their deathbed? There's often two types of people on their on their deathbed, who've gotten the diagnosis. One uh, are those who maybe don't believe in Christ, maybe they don't have a strong faith in Christ. And, and you talk to them and, and you try to comfort them and you try to encourage them and the, the thing that they see, the thing that their mind is focused on is the death that's coming. They see the sickness that they're enduring as unto death. That's all they can see. And that often leads them to uh, maybe despair, despondency, losing hope, weeping, gnashing of teeth, regret, all these kind of things that come up when we think the sickness is unto death. There's another kind of person you'll meet on their deathbed, the, the one who's been sanctified by the work of the Spirit, the one who has a very strong faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who understands that here we have no abiding city. But we seek a city which has foundations, one that recognizes that in this tabernacle we groan, waiting for our perfect habitation, our glorified body, the one who has a strong faith in Christ and recognizes that this sickness I'm going through is for the glory of God, is able to endure. You ever met somebody like that on their sickbed? As a pastor, you go and visit people, and and I come back edified. I went to edify them, but they're edifying me because their eyes are fixed on the glory of God in the midst of their sicknesses, in the midst of their trials. And so Christ teaches us what the purpose of this sickness is. It's not unto death. It's unto the glory of God. But notice, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, at this point... We need a a practical application because all of us are disciples. Perhaps we've gone through sufferings in our family experiences. Perhaps we have yet to go through serious sufferings. How do we get to this point? How do we understand when the cancer diagnosis comes, how can we be prepared to see it as unto the glory of God? Will you prepare for this by living to the glory of God now. You see, not only are your sufferings unto God's glory, but everything that you do, say, and think should be unto God's glory. Paul gives us this instruction in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. Ephesians. 
Uh, pardon me, the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. Yep. The book of Colossians, verse 17 of chapter 3, Paul is talking about how to live as the elect of God, and he says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What Paul is saying is that everything you do should be done with an eye to God's glory. It should be done as an act of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we train ourselves in this, we practice this habit, so that when the diagnosis does come, we're able to glorify God in it. You know, I've often uh, found myself in prayer uh, asking the Lord to give me strength to glorify Him. And, and sometimes my thoughts go to being a martyr for Christ and, and laying down my life for Christ and, and making this ultimate sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ. But then sometimes the Lord convicts me and He says, you want to lay down your life for Christ, but you can't lay down your phone for Christ. You, you want to, to be a, a mighty martyr for the Lord, but you can't make a sacrifice of praying to me, of, of devoting yourself to the Scriptures, of, of doing small things now before that day comes. Well, likewise, when the diagnosis comes, and all of us will receive this diagnosis, I knew a Marine once that said to me, everybody has a toe tag. The difference is the date that's written on it. We're all going to receive this diagnosis. And to be able to glorify God when that happens, we have to live for His glory now. Well, the, the Lord goes on teaching us about the purpose uh, and, and living this out by His example in verse 5. Notice once again, John repeats that Jesus loved this family. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When the Bible repeats something multiple times, it's as if it's, it's highlighting it in bold and increasing the font size so that it fills the page. Notice what John has done here. In the midst of this diagnosis, God loves you even when the diagnosis comes. Because it's easy to forget that, isn't it? When we go through the sufferings, it's easy to forget. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, so... When he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. This is where our faith is tested. This is where our understanding of God's love to us is really put to the test. Notice what John has said. Jesus loved this family. Therefore, he stayed away for two more days. Because Jesus loved them, he stayed away for two more days. Now, Christ knew exactly what he was doing. Christ knows this man is going to die. We're going to see later in the chapter, if you've read this chapter recently, you know that Mary and Martha come to him with this question. If you were here, he wouldn't have died. Christ stays away on purpose so that Lazarus would die because he loved them. Now remember what I said at the beginning. The diagnosis that the doctor gives you 
only refers to the physical body. But the diagnosis of heaven refers to your soul. And what the heavenly doctor prescribes to us is that the thing we need is not always deliverance from pain. But we need to see the glory of God in the midst of the pain because in beholding the glory of God, we see the ultimate purpose. And God will oftentimes leave us in these situations. God will oftentimes delay for a couple of days. Just as Christ does here. But let me remind you, even though Jesus delays... That doesn't mean he's failed to love them. In fact, in his delay, he is loving them in the way that he alone can. Secondly, there's a very practical application for us when we pray. We've prayed for many sicknesses and illnesses in our church. We're praying right now for Kay Horn, who suffered a car wreck uh, and has some injuries that she's going to have to work through. It is good for us to pray for healing. It is good for us to pray, if we were in this family, for Lazarus's healing from this sickness. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray about those things, so I want to be very clear about this. We should pray for healing. But as we pray for healings, we have to keep in mind the ultimate purpose of our sicknesses. Along with praying for healing, we also need to pray for the endurance to walk through these sicknesses. Because it may be in God's providence in your life, whatever the diagnosis is, He may want to keep you under that diagnosis for a couple of days. He may want that diagnosis to remain so that He can do His good work in your soul. The Westminster Confession of Faith helpfully summarizes for us what God often does in his providence with this. Listen carefully. This is Westminster Confession 5, paragraph 5. Chapter 5, paragraph 5. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season, for a couple of days, his own children to manifold temptations, and the corruption of their own hearts. Isn't this often what comes out when we go through sufferings? You know, I think for the Christian, the, the physical pain of disease is not really the thing that hurts the most. It's the temptation that we feel to walk away from the Lord. It's the temptation that we feel to indulge in our sins. It's, it's that temptation that is the real test that's being put upon us. And the confession summarizes for us, God will often leave his own children in this state to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled. But notice the next part. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. Let me translate the language of the confession into the language of John chapter 11. What the confession is saying is that God will oftentimes delay for a couple of days so that he can show you the glory of his son 
to strengthen you in the midst of that diagnosis. To, to bring them to a more close support, to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. And so Christ, because he loves them, delays a couple of days. Christ not only teaches us the purpose of these sufferings, he also gives us an example. His own example of how to walk through these sufferings. Verse 7, Christ begins again. After this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now remember the chapter we just finished, John chapter 10, Christ has been teaching about himself as the good shepherd, and he said, I and my father are one, and the Jews were ready to murder him on the spot. That's where Christ is going back to. Bethany is in the land of Judah, and Christ has to go back to the land of Judah to see his friends. Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Well, Christ now responds. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. If one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, Christ uses this uh, illustration as an example of his own faith. You see, Christ as a man walked by faith. And the reason or the purpose for everything that he did was to glorify his Father. That was the single thing he had in his mind. I'm going to glorify my Father which is in heaven. This is then the light that he's referring to. Christ himself is the light, and in Christ being exalted and glorified, the light shines upon men. So Christ, as he's going back to the land that wants to murder him, he is able to do so without wavering, without stumbling, because he's keeping this calling of God in view. Let me put it to you this way. Christ is walking with an eye towards his Father's glory. Because he keeps that in mind, he's able to walk right back into the jaws of the lion. He's able to walk without stumbling. In Christ's mind, the pain, the suffering, the turmoil is not what he focuses on. What he focuses on is glorifying God. Verse 10, Christ compares this then to one who walks in the night. He stumbles because the light is not in him. How often have we been walking the Christian life? Sufferings come. Trials, a diagnosis comes. And we lose sight of Christ. We lose sight of the glory of the Father. And we begin to stumble. We, we begin to trip on our path. Peter, in the midst of the storm, had his eyes fixed on Christ, and he walked on top of the water. In the midst of a thunderstorm, when he began to look away from Christ, he began to sink under the waves. Same idea here. The one who does not walk with his eyes on Christ begins to stumble and to fall. This is one of the great... Uh, antidotes. This is one of the great antivirals, so to speak, when it comes to resisting temptations to sin. Because the way that our flesh works is that when we suffer and things are not going our way, 
That's when our flesh wants to entice us to sin. That's when our flesh wants to drive us to sin against our Father. And if we look at the sufferings, if we lose sight of the glory of Christ, we'll stumble. We'll fall into our sins. But Christ is reminding us, keep your eyes fixed on the light and keep walking according to His calling. This is Christ's own example. Now keep in mind what Christ is committing to here. As far as the disciples know, Christ will be murdered if he goes back to Judea again. In fact, we know Christ is going to be murdered in Judea again. But because Christ is doing the will of his Father, he's willing to risk this. He's willing to hazard this and go into this place. Well, Christ keeps uh, speaking to them. And he says, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Now remember Christ and his knowledge of this situation. Christ knows that this man is dead. But I want you to see how Christ's faith is able to sweeten his language about this situation. Because of Christ's faith in his Father and because Christ knows that Lazarus will rise again, he says, our friend is asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. He uses this very homely and comforting language. Even though he's actually dead, in the light of the gospel and in the light of Christ, he's only sleeping. That's all that's going on here. This is why Paul can say in several places of Scripture, our light and momentary affliction. The... the, the uh, the minor inconveniences of this life, this, this short time period that we're in the body, does not compare to the glory of God that shall be revealed in us. The same kind of thing is going on here. Because Christ sees the glory of the Father, he's able to uh, sweeten his language about this and speak in this way. This is very important for us to recognize, especially about the way we talk about things in our life. You know, it's often the case, the language that we use about our sufferings becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? Something happens to us, and we begin to characterize it in a certain way, and then we can only ever see it in that way, because our language is powerful. It directs us in a certain way. You know, my son, we went to Florida one time. My son was two. And we went to Disneyland. We had a timeshare that Mandy's grandparents let us use. And on the drive down, it, we're telling our son on the car ride, we're going to Florida. We're going to Florida. We kept saying that to him. So he's thinking, Florida, Florida, Florida. We, we get to uh, the place, and there was a pool at this timeshare, and we're hanging out around the pool, and Nathaniel's asking us, are we in Florida? Yes, we've made it to Florida. We're here in Florida. Well, we go back up to the room and have dinner, then Nathaniel says, I want to go to Florida. Like, well, we're in Florida. What are you talking about? No, I want to go back to Florida. Like, well, we're in Florida. He thought the pool was Florida. So when he said, I want to go to Florida, he meant the pool. Because, you see, his language was coloring the way he was viewing it. Likewise here, Christ's language colors the way that he views this suffering. Likewise for us. Now... 
in the Westminster Confession and other places, uh, God's providence over humanity is characterized in two ways. Towards the wicked, his hard providence are judgments. And towards his children, his hard providences are chastisements. Think about it this way. Uh, There's been hurricanes that have come through here. The remnants of a hurricane has come through this part of the state. When that hurricane comes through, we recognize that that's God's providence. He sent that hurricane. And that hurricane's going to do damage. That hurricane's going to cause pain and suffering to a lot of people. The same hurricane towards the wicked is a judgment to destroy them. For God's people, that hurricane, through the grace of Christ, is a chastisement to sanctify them. Here's the point of this sort of rabbit trail. If you are a child of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, any suffering, any pain, any diagnosis that you go through is not a judgment. It is a chastisement. It is not punishment. It is discipline. When you as parents have to spank your children, you're not punishing them. You're disciplining them and training them. And that's what God the Father does for us. If we keep these things in mind, it will sweeten our language. We'll be able to understand, think about, and pray about these things the way that Christ does. Well, he gives us the example. And then finally he tells us the means. And the means by which we walk through sufferings is faith. You know, I don't think it's, it's any accident that Thomas is the disciple who's represented here. Thomas is the one that represents the disciples in this episode. Thomas is famously known as Doubting Thomas. At the end of the Gospel account, Thomas is the one who says, I will not believe unless I see the print in his hands and the mark in his side. This is the same Thomas. And Thomas uh, represents the disciples, and he represents their misunderstanding of what Christ is saying, but he also represents the unbelief of the disciples. Look at what happens. The disciples misunderstand what Christ is saying. His disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Very interesting phrase that John uses here. Christ is very blunt with the disciples at this point. He's been using gracious language. He he uses comforting and soft language to try and bring them along, but they misunderstand it, and so he has to become very blunt with them. Lazarus is dead. He lets that sink in, and he says, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe, nevertheless, let us go to him. Now, Christ explains this whole episode in this exchange with Thomas. And he says, Lazarus died, and I'm glad for it. He's not glad for Lazarus' sake. He's not even glad for his own sake. He's glad for the disciples' sake. Because he knows that in this episode, he's going to give them an example, and he's going to give them a reason to believe. 
Everything that Christ does in your life is to strengthen your faith. Your faith in His promises is the most precious possession that you have. Your confidence in the Word of God is the one thing that saves you. Not by its own power, not because it's virtuous in itself, but because of the one that it relies upon. Your faith is the most important thing in this life. Peter says this in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, he writes to the disciples. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. 1 Peter, by the way, is a great letter to read and meditate on when you are suffering. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God. Period. No, that's not what he wrote. You are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time. Your faith is God's power at work in your life. Your faith is what God uses to preserve you and save you. That's what Peter is saying here. And Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ tells the disciples, Lazarus is dead, but I'm glad for your sakes, because it is through his death and the display of my power that your faith will be strengthened And as your faith is strengthened, I will be glorified more and more. Your faith is the most important thing in your life. And that's what Christ is strengthening through your trials. That's what he's teaching the disciples here. That's what he's going to teach Mary and Martha in the next two episodes. And that's what he's doing in your life when he sends you the diagnosis. These are sober lessons, but these are the lessons that save the soul. These are lessons that no one really wants to go through. No one really wants to be taught this. But in God's all-wise providence, this course, the course of sufferings, is not an elective. This is a core requirement in the school of Christ. As his disciples, he does teach us how to endure these sufferings. But remember why. He does it because he loves you. He does it because he sanctifies you. He does it because he wants your faith to shine like gold that is purified in the fire. And if that is accomplished, God is satisfied, your soul will be saved. And the diagnosis will have proved true. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the teaching and the example of Christ. We confess that we are your servants and that we often fear death. We often fear the diagnosis we may receive tomorrow. But we know that through the teaching and the example of Christ and the faith that is wrought in us by your Spirit, you will give us the ability to endure. We ask you, O Lord, to do so, and especially those that are going through sufferings right now, that you would comfort and strengthen their hearts through the grace of Christ and his gospel. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.